0: /awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com
1: you are now listening to postmortem with Mick Garris where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts literally to the renowned horror director, writer and producer now here's your host Mick Garris I'm Mick Garris and this is postmortem Back in the so-called golden age of Hollywood, directors were, for the most part, craftsmen. Though there were some who specialized in a particular genre, like Hitchcock with thrillers, John Ford with westerns, and George Cukor with, well, women's pictures, most were jacks of all trades. A filmmaker could make a drama, a war movie, a horror film, and a comedy all in the same year. They wore many hats. Then, as now, very few directors had their own signature style. It was the rare filmmaker whose vision was so remarkably personal that you'd recognize it on the screen in minutes. From Georges Méliès to Hitchcock to Spielberg to Guillermo del Toro, we embrace the unique vision. Walter Hill is one of those filmmakers. His muscular, lean, gritty, and often violent storytelling is iconic, original, and immediately identifiable. And like the movie makers of the golden age, his works have crossed many genres, though he is probably best known for his westerns and action films. A true tour. He is the complete filmmaker, writer, director, and producer. Walter Hill has truly done it all and has had the kind of career that any director would want. Critical success, big box office, longevity, and a long and varied list of movies like no other. He's best known for reintroducing the Western with films like his directorial debut, Hard Times, and later with Wild Bill and Geronimo, and then again on television with Deadwood and Broken Trail. His action films, The Warriors, Dead Heat, and Trespass, are ballets with bullets. He's even been successful with comedy, 48 Hours with Eddie Murphy was one of his biggest box office hits. But on postmortem, our focus is primarily on horror. You don't immediately think of horror when you think of Walter Hill, but in fact, his impact on the genre is huge and important. First, as writer and producer on Alien, and as one of the producers and directors on the Tales from the Crypt TV series. He is a very important creator in our world of dark fantasy. And he has a new movie out... The Assignment is pulpy noir, and I would say borderline horror. It's a very different movie from a very different movie maker, and we're going to start our discussion with that. You're listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. The Assignment was originally a script that you had found some 20 years or so ago, right?
2: Longer. Uh, Dennis wrote his story and script, I think, in 1977. I read it then. Uh, It came to me through the agency, uh, and I was fascinated by it, but I I didn't do anything. Uh, I was quite busy doing some other things, and uh, I never quite forgot it, though. And about 10 or 15 years later, I ran across it again, and I called Dennis, this is Dennis And, uh, asking if the rights were still available and, uh, they were, and I optioned it and I did a screenplay, uh, co-wrote a screenplay, uh, and, uh, with Paula Heller. And so this
1: is close to 19, early nineties?
2: Yeah, I guess it was, uh, yeah, it had to be in the early nineties and, uh, it was a very uh, we took a we took it in a, a couple of very complicated ways uh the directions, and I finally decided that we had kind of made a mess out of it and uh, <laughs> well so, that's honest yeah so i um thought that I had abandoned the project and um let the option run out and then about three years ago, i guess it was i was uh, rooting around the cellar, that that old thing, and um, <clears throat> and I ran across Dennis's original script in the basement, and uh, in this great dusty pile, <laughs> and I looked at it again, and uh, and this is one of those things, that's kind of hard to explain, but suddenly and in a, a very short order, I had an idea about how to do the movie in in, in a new way, different way than I had tried before. And that basically was to kind of do it in a comic book graphic novel fashion and to kind of make it an extension of the Tales from the Crypt. Uh, work that I had done. Uh,
1: that struck me immediately because of using the frames from graphic novels that you transition from scene to scene, but it also has a very healthy dose of film noir and very pulpy and very tough guy and, and, but in, you know, your, your films are often about masculinity <laughs> and what it means to be a man versus an individual versus perhaps an underground society. This is a lot like that, but I love how you use the, the, uh, primary colors, and it's always dark. There's not a daylight scene in the movie. Um, and, and, well,
2: there's a couple of daylight scenes, but it's,
1: but it's in a dark room with daylight outside. And
2: they're, cl- they're, well, they're cloudy days.
1: Yeah.
2: But, um, <laughs> <clears throat> no, you're, you're essentially right. Uh, so I, I wanted it to be, but it was, I wanted to do something. What did I want? I wanted to do something noirish. I wanted to do something, uh, in the graphic novel comic book vein. I wanted to do something with female leads, uh, because everybody said, oh, he only works with guys, <laughs> and, you know, all that crap. And you get, uh, you get, and you want to do things that are a little different for yourself, you know, um. You want to do things that are the same, but in a different vein somehow. And you want to, you want, you want your comfort zone, but, uh, but at the same time, you don't want to be endlessly
1: repetitious. Well, this is a, a very much a change of pace in some ways. It's an independent film for one thing. Uh, but secondly, it is about gender in a different way. I don't want to give any spoilers, but I, I think there's probably, maybe you are the best person to tell what this movie is about.
2: Well, uh, that's always the hardest question, isn't it? Um, yeah. and, and finally, I, I confess, uh, even though I'm here at your kind request doing the interview, <clears throat> I think that the process is kind of impossible because I think you can't really totally or even begin to express what, because so many of your ideas are vague My my idea you know, when you do a film and, and there's a lot of different complicated reasons and, uh,
1: but even the plot, I think, it has to be told in the trailer. I assume that uh, this is a hitman who goes through um, someone else's revenge circumstances and comes out well, the other end in yes, a very different person.
2: That's that's at the uh, at the most basic level. Right. It's also a story of a um, highly trained medical doctor who's also an intellectual of a certain bent. Uh, a kind of Ubermensch, Nietzschean mm-hmm. personality, uh, gone seriously off the track. Uh, pitted, played by Sigourney Weaver. Played by Sigourney Weaver. Very well played by Sigourney Fantastic. Weaver. Fantastic. Uh, uh, pitted against, uh, with ideas about revenge, having reasons for revenge, against somebody that is really the dregs of life, that even on the uh, bottom feeder in, even in the criminal world, Uh, a survivor of the most Darwinian kind of uh, uh, environment. And as the narrative progresses, you see the changes in both characters. Uh, One of the things I kind of like about the story is that you end up with a... Residual affection for both characters. I think they're they're they the the film the story leaves them both in a melancholy but uh, melancholic condition. But uh, you you neither hate either either character. I think uh, even though they. Both have done and continue to do rather wicked things.
1: Well, that's an interesting hallmark of a lot of your films is the moral ambiguity of the leading characters. They're often, in this case, a hitman and a deranged uh, doctor, surgeon. Um, you know, it, it, but it's usually against a smaller segment of a society at large. It's, uh, whether it's the Long Riders or it's, uh, you know, Southern Comfort, any number of things. And this one, though, you have a lot of, a lot of fun with it and a very bold performance by your lead character. And Michelle is, uh,
2: Michelle she, Rodriguez. Yeah. Michelle Rodriguez. She, she gives a very brave performance is, is you said, very bold, very brave. Uh, it is in addition to other things, partially an essay about the human body. And she, uh, she gave it her all in this. Uh, she understood that, that premise. She, she's, Quite a character. She's um, really, you know, comes from a a tough environment herself. That's that's all very true, Mm -hmm. and uh, she's not embarrassed about it. And she wants to meet you as an equal (laughs) in the tough guy world. And uh, (laughs) uh, our first lunch was, now that I think about it, rather hilarious. But uh, uh, there was a lot of positioning each other as to you know who who had the credentials here and uh, you
1: were taking the girl fight yeah
2: <laughs> yeah and um, well she immediately she finally jumped up and said uh, I don't know who you're gonna hire for this f- part but if you uh, but I'll tell you one thing no guy no girl is gonna handle the guns any better than me think about that walked away and uh, well, number one she was correct about that she she handled the weaponry beautifully. And it was an utterly convincing moment that I knew she could handle the part and that I knew that she had uh, uh, credibility.
1: I don't think it's saying too much, especially in the selling of the film, There's certain plot elements that have to be given away, is that she plays two roles, basically, who are one. She plays a man and a woman in this film. Correct. So tell me a little bit about what those conversations were like with her in creating that character.
2: Well, one approach. Well, I think one of the questions, if I may, give you one. (laughs) (laughs) Please. Why didn't we cast a guy? Um, And I had a couple of feelings about that. That um, I thought if you cast a guy, the, the the film would be too much about makeup and that kind of business, because mm-hmm. the three quarters of the film, the Michelle's character, Frank kitchen, uh, is in the body of a woman. So that was number one. I also thought that, you know, Frank kitchen is a guy, you begin the movie with Frank kitchen as a guy, Frank kitchen, due to an operation goes through genital alteration. But Frank Kitchen remains a guy. Mm-hmm. He is not, he does not become a woman. He is a guy inside his head. And he's wearing a woman's body. And suddenly he's wearing a woman's body. And he has to make certain adjustments to this. I mean, the, the movie is a double revenge story. The, the doctor is getting revenge on uh, Frank For having killed one of her relatives, her brother, Um, Frank wakes up in this state and wonders who did it, why did they do it, and boy, am I going to get even? You've you've the wrong guy here, (laughs) you know. And um, so that becomes, but then it becomes a journey of uh, discovery and and mental. Growth, I think, on both parts of both the the main characters.
1: You wanted to do comic books at the beginning of your in your youth, right?
2: Well, I yes, I mean, I I I don't know what you want to do when you're very young is pretty vague and and you know intense at the moment and forgotten the next day. But uh, when I was a kid, I was um, an asthmatic. Very, bad. Uh, I had acute uh, asthma, and I didn't go to school a lot. I was kind of home homeschooled by my uh, my mother and my grandmother essentially, and uh, uh, and I grew up in this kind of world of uh, comic books and. And books, I, I learned to read at a fairly early age. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I loved comic books. I loved listening to the radio, which, you know, with the various serials that were on and mm-hmm. things like that. And uh, um, and I was also exposed to literature, uh, more serious literature. But, uh, you know, you, The Invisible Man or Treasure Island or right. something like you begin there. And uh, it is... Uh, It is one of the more uh, charming things about the great uh, Argentine writer Borges that he said that in his very old age he thought he was going to, after being one of the best-read men in the world, he was going to spend his last days, he thought, uh, rereading the books that he first loved as a child. And I've often said, that's a great idea. I'd like to reread the books I first read as a child, and I'd also like to see the movies that I first uh, uh, responded to with an enormous kind of the passion, the thing it being, you know, yeah. one that it was on last night. I was watching The Howard it. Hawks, of, uh, yeah, Christian
1: the, Niby. Yeah, yeah.
2: and, um, uh, you know, it, it still holds its great power and, and, and great affection, uh, actually, when we were working on alien you know the the first one when David and I would work on the script uh the thing was always the
1: that was your prototype uh, yeah,
2: that was always well what they what would they have you know what would they have
1: done well interesting would, well let's talk a little bit about alien because it is so deeply rooted in kind of what has gone on in genre films since. Um, this was in the wake of Star Wars, which had been the first space opera to be successful in many years. And suddenly, I actually did a little bit of publicity on Alien with a guy named Charlie Lippincott, who had a, sure, a marketing yeah. company. And the exciting thing about it was it was a science fiction film for grown-ups. It was the first R-rated science fiction film. So, And and your script, yours and David Geiger's script, has become iconic in the sense of it is so... It makes Hemingway look long-winded, you know. It's 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 very terse and beautiful to the point. I mean, it, you just burn through it. There's not a wasted word in that. Is that is that how you like to work? Or uh, oh, very much. Yeah. The um,
2: when I was beginning as a screenwriter, I mean, one of the things that I, uh, with the arrogance of youth, and <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that I. I was I guess you'd say disappointed in, in working on you read a lot of scripts. And uh this was back in the sixties, and they all seemed to be written by the same person. I mean it was no matter there was a kind of Hollywood style that uh and it wasn't particularly literary either. Definitely uh, Or even literate in most uh, cases. Yeah. <laughs> and and it was a kind of bland uh there was a kind of, I guess, uh efficiency about it, but uh I started out as writing the scripts and, and I tried to bring a different form to them. And Alien, by the time of Alien, we had it down pretty well. We, you know, we, I think the first script that I was totally committed to in uh, what became my style, I guess you'd say, was, was uh, Hard Times. And then the next one, because it was the first one I was writing for myself.
1: Right. This was the first film you directed.
2: That's right. And it was the first one for myself. And I went further down the trail with uh, the driver and that, and the approach to that script.
1: Which is as lean as a narrative can be.
2: Pretty lean. <laughs> and the, uh, and the, um, and it was right in that time that we were working on the alien script. You know, this was the, it a
1: tough pitch uh, with something that was so adult? When we'd been coming off the crest of Star Wars being this giant family phenomenon.
2: Well, suddenly, let Star Wars legitimatized, uh, I think science fiction had always been kind of back porch,
1: the bastard stepchild here. Uh, yeah, I mean,
2: uh, science fiction moved into the front room. Westerns were pushed into the back, onto the back porch. Action films had always been there. Um, And suddenly, so we had this, uh, we had optioned the alien script. uh, and Dan
1: O'Bannon's screenplay?
2: Well, it was, uh, yes, Ron Chousette and Dan O'Bannon had fashioned a a script. And uh, uh, they had, uh, Fox had seen the script and uh, they had rejected it. Uh, um, It was sent to us as kind of an appeal, could we... Um, you know, revitalize interest in it. It didn't mm-hmm. turned down quite a bit, which isn't always, by the way, a definitive answer to anything. Definitely. As, we all, as we all know. But, uh, and Fox was quite, quite surprised when we exhibited interest in it. It was, the script was pretty crude and it wasn't, uh, wasn't terribly well thought out in a lot of ways, but the mm-hmm. premise was quite good and they had a couple of really good scenes in it. Uh, what we call the burster, Right. Yes. uh, So that was already there. That was there. Yeah, Yeah, that was there. And, uh, that was the, really, that was the reason we bought the script. Uh, That's correct. That was that scene.
1: And, uh. It the terror from beyond space. Yeah, there were,
2: you know, there were no women in it. It was an all male kind of thing. And, uh, uh, so that changed. I made, uh, uh, the Ripley character, uh, a woman and that
1: kind uh, of changes everything. I mean, it really changed a lot. Yeah. The uh, it was
2: uh, her name is Ellen Ripley. Ellen was my mother's middle name, so uh. I, I used that. And um, David went off, I got the uh task of making the original transitional script. <laughs> David mm-hmm. went off with his girlfriend to Hong Kong. This is David Guiler, yes, and uh, he always. <coughs> had a better life than any of us. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it was during the Christmas season. And I, uh, uh, I worked on the script for a few weeks and, and I had said, David and I were talking, you know, we're going to have to, you know, in the future, there will be women on a spaceship. This is, uh, not exactly shocking, but, um, uh, and he suggested, he said, well, in the first battle, he said, why don't you try it with the captain being a woman? And, uh, I started that way, but then I thought, no, you know, is one of the great tropes is, uh, you know, the blind girl in the haunted house or something. Right. And, uh, right. So I said, let's let's to myself, let's uh, let's change this over and uh, go with it uh, with a woman action lead.
1: But this was groundbreaking in 1979.
2: Seemed to be, and. Uh, uh, the audience responded, obviously. Ridley did a wonderful job. Uh, Fantastic. I, I think it's still his best movie. I, I have no, uh, and he's made a lot of good ones. It's and, amazing
1: and, because nothing looked like that movie before. We'd seen uh, out of space it, movies, but it, nothing it, like that.
2: You know, the, um, uh, Ridley's involvement, we had sent the script to, I don't know how many directors, and they'd all turned it down. Really? Except, yeah, except Robert Aldrich. Interesting. And Robert Aldrich wanted to do the movie, and uh, Robert Aldrich, and initially it looked like that was going to happen. Uh, Aldrich liked the script, saw the potential, wanted to do it. Uh, he was the still the director, uh, president of the Directors Guild at the time. Mm-hmm. He felt he had been gone so much when he was making the movie he did over in Germany, Twilight's Last Gleaming, and that he had to make the movie in the U.S. Fox, for various financial reasons, very much wanted to make the movie in England mm-hmm. on the Edie plan. That was a big thing then. And they also had a special deal on the Bond stage and they wanted to shoot the Bond stage. And they also had uh, a, an awfully good run of luck using that stage because that was the uh, Star Wars stage. So right. there were a lot of. And then uh, Bob had a movie that came out that didn't do too well. So suddenly that opportunity
1: vanished. This is the first I've heard about Robert Aldrich <coughs> being the presumptive director of that, which ties you together in another way. You were going to remake Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, which had, well, the original I was...
2: Well, was, I wasn't uh, going to so much remake it as adapted in a different direction. Ah. But those are subtle distinctions, I think, for... Mm. Uh, you know when i did uh, a story uh, i did a very free adaptation of a story written by mr kurosawa a number of years ago and i i don't know how many times i said this is an adaptation from an original story by mr kurosawa and a couple of other writers uh it is not meant to be a remake right the day the movie comes out every review says Walter Hill's remake of uh, Curse so you know it's
1: <clears throat> believe me I understand I did the Shining mini-series so, <laughs> yeah.
2: so familiar with the process it's, it's their shorthand you know <clears throat> right. and um, however inaccurate or however correct you are in saying this is not a remake it's it's an adaptation from a similar idea so um, or the idea and so so that was um but i i knew bob uh i knew his son bill uh one of my best friends over the years uh, sadly uh departed died too young lucas heller mm. uh was a very close friend of mine and who uh, wrote baby jane wrote the original um uh, from the novel uh, who was it? Henry Farrell, I think. It
1: was right. I yes. Yeah.
2: And, uh, Lucas was extraordinary character and a very good screenwriter. He did the dirty dozen with Bob and I, and through Lucas, I used to hear lots of, you know, Bob Aldrich stories, mm-hmm. by the way, I, I feel the characterization of, uh, oh. Robert, Robert Aldrich mm-hmm. and this thing that's there's. Dual, show, yeah. uh, feud or whatever. A feud, yes. Feud, yeah. is, feud Betty and Joan. Is uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, I'm a First Amendment guy. You can write what you want, right. But, uh, right? but it bears absolutely no relationship to the real person of Robert Aldrich. and I think it's rather shameful. That's too bad. The, the way they're presenting the character. Yeah shameful
1: well you came into directing from in one sense from your screenwriting but even before that you'd been an assistant director which is a rare route to being
2: uh what's a a rare route to being a writer
1: (laughs) it is definitely that but you (laughs) worked with woody allen on take the money and run i did and then bullet seems to maybe have been an influential film for you um as a filmmaker well i think
2: you know i really think they all were there there was um People occasionally ask me what was there an advantage being working as an assistant uh, when I became a director, and I say, "Yeah, there there was. I kind of knew my way around a set. I didn't have to wonder what grips did as opposed to electricians or something like that. Um, I don't think it's the most critical thing in the world about whether or not you're gonna." be able to make a director, but um, uh, make it as a director. But um, yeah, it was, it was helpful. But it was, uh, my work as an assistant really was just to finance myself to mm-hmm. uh, survive while I was trying to write.
1: But it's great for the nuts and bolts. The more you know about everybody else's oh, position, I, yeah. the better a director you Yeah, are. sure.
2: The more you're around something, the better off you are. But, but we were just talking about Robert <coughs> Aldrich. Uh, Aldrich was assistant director for uh, mm-hmm. he didn't become a writer but he um uh, bob jumped from assistant to
1: director did you write prose before you ever thought of writing screenplays no so you you knew you wanted to make movies from the beginning yeah. of your creative process Yeah, right
2: from the time i decided to get in i knew exactly what i wanted to do i certainly thought that i was going to have a, a a life but i was very young i mean it was like joining. I just got out of school. I failed the army physical. And,
1: uh, <laughs> because of your asthma?
2: Because of the asthma. And uh, I failed the army physical. I drifted into uh, to a series of accidents into this uh, periphery of the Hollywood thing. I had always loved movies. And suddenly I decided that maybe I could make a living out of it and, uh, or make my living in it. And I knew... Uh, I think within a week of being around it what I wanted to do, which is write and direct movies. One thing I absolutely believe is that uh people that have had the chance to make and make a living in the film world, no complaints. You know, this is a great privileged way to live a life and uh, it's been a lot of fun and uh it has its ups and downs. That's part of the deal. Yep. Uh, there's the uh, I can never quite, I have to look this quote up, but uh, Dr. Johnson said, I read this once that, uh, uh, we enter the arena uncalled to seek our fortune and hazard disgrace. (laughs) And those are the, those are the rules. You take your chances, you know, you, you play the cards that you're dealt. I'm, running through the (laughs) cliches. and uh, You play the cards you get dealt, and um, uh, on the whole, I've had a very lucky career.
1: Well, I, I find it to be not just a lucky career, but you've been able to guide your career in ways that you're constantly evolving. It's never the, oh, I can do this in my sleep sort of thing. It's always something, a fresh approach. There's a new approach, you know, uh, the assignment is a new direction for you. Um, but one of the things that you will probably be noted for uh, for years to come is your reintroduction of the Western into the studio system as well as into television and with Deadwood and uh, and the like. But tell me what drew you to the Western and wanting to make that such a big part of your life and your career.
2: Well, I think they were one probably my favorite films when I was a kid. Uh, I uh, I like their. I think I think you would say they're simple narratives. Uh, I always say this about doing westerns. People say, "Well, you know, you, you like to work with westerns." Yeah, I do. Well, why? Well, you know, it's beautiful environment. You get to go out in the middle of nowhere, and it's usually in a terrific landscape and you work with the horses and uh, you know the horses are really kind of special and uh, being around them and uh, the people that take care of horses I think you find they're very special the actors have a special feeling about being in Westerns and it also makes you kind of feel like you're a kid again mm-hmm. you know the costumes and the uh, it's an opportunity to uh, go out and do something, uh, that you don't get every day. And it's just, uh, it's just, it's a very special moment, but that's all good. Uh, but I really think that, that the biggest thing about making a Western for me, it, it's kind of like walking around in the old Testament, you know, you, you get to tell these very elemental stories. Uh, about people that do good things and bad things. And, you know, there's the rules of the game are somehow foretold and, um, there's a dance to it. Uh, I think all the best stories are, you know, finally Old Testament stories, <laughs> really. They're all there. And, um, yeah, Borges again, you know, Borges said there were only two, two basic stories. So, um, Two being the crucifixion and the Odyssey, but um, uh,
1: but there's so, there's a purity to the Western and to uh, an environment that was maybe more challenging in those days than than our soft uh, lives these days. Well, you know, yeah. I mean, look,
2: nowadays all this is rather controversial. Uh, the uh, uh, there are a lot of people that feel that the Hollywood has told a very false story over the years the uh uh the treatment of native americans uh, actually i i think that's a false charge i think native americans have consistently been treated in at least the good westerns uh with great respect and great understanding and it uh, maybe maybe a bit patronized i i understand mm-hmm. that but uh not not everything is going to be uh uh you know current sensibility about right. things but
1: um i mean in the 30s and 40s they were just the bad guys but, uh,
2: but- the, the 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 notion that um uh, the winning of the west as they used to say and um, it's the hollywood western presented a very white culture that's certainly um politically incorrect at the moment mm-hmm. um and so there's a lot of reasons now that that the demands are either for enormous revisions in the approach to the western or just dismissal altogether mm. dismissed as a, a
1: legitimate genre let's talk a little about tales from the crypt i did one of them i directed one of them and uh um, very, it was very good. a Thank blast. Very good. <laughs> Thanks. But uh, I would love to know, knowing that you had a background in that when you were a kid, you wanted to make comic books, here you are at a point in your career where you could be a part of bringing, was that a favorite comic book of yours in your youth?
2: The uh, Yes, absolutely. The EC Comics were much to the despair of my mother uh, and my <laughs> grandmother. <laughs> they were they were among my very favorites. And uh, uh, there's a fellow, I'm okay, jeez, I can't think of his name. Uh, in St. Louis that republished
1: Oh, Russ Cochran. Russ Cochran. <clears throat> yeah.
2: Russ Cochran republished the EC comics in black and white and these big oversized Books. things. I've yeah. got them. Yeah. I've got them too. And <laughs> I stumbled across these, uh, I guess it was in the mid 1980s. And I got the complete, you know, reliving my youth and mm-hmm. all that. And uh, there were a couple of them. I, I just thought, and anthology movies were Kind of, uh, you know, being made and talked about at the time. And I thought, you know, boy, let's get the rights to uh, some of this EC stuff or something. So uh, I had a company out at Universal at the time. We acquired the rights to Tales from the Crypt.
1: And then the then, uh, the option, couldn't get the movie made. Uh, so you were originally going to do it as a feature film like the earlier British? Exactly. I see. Exactly. And I had the one I wanted to do, which was the man who,
2: uh, the man who was death. Mm-hmm. And, uh, which is the one I did in the pilot. And, um, Joel Silver came into the picture. He was, he and I had worked on several films together. And Joel, uh, he was fascinated by, I had the big Russ Cochran, uh, comics there and, uh, oversized comics in my office. And he would, and I said, you know, we're going to make this into a movie or that's the idea and et cetera, et cetera. And so when it wasn't happening, he came back and said, um, why don't I be your partner? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, uh, Joel's not a bashful fellow. And, uh, <laughs> no, I've worked and, with him as yeah. well. <laughs> and, uh, uh, he said, uh, if I could get it set up on television, do you think, uh, a cable, do you think, would you... I said, sure, Christ, yeah, that's that's fine to me. But uh, we were—I was busy doing a lot of other things, and and uh, so Joel went out and did, did all the work and got it set up at HBO, and mm-hmm. and, and Dick Donner did a lot of the uh, work too.
1: And Bob Zemeckis was also. Bob one was kind of kinda like me; he just yeah.
2: came in, right? You know, he he showed my deal. Even though uh, David and I were the original entrepreneurial force, I guess you'd say. Uh, my deal was when directing them, I, I would hit the budget, but I didn't want anybody telling me what the script was going to be about or, um, what to do. And, uh, nobody did. And I did three of them Mm -hmm. and I was always very fond of all three,
1: um, uh, were you involved in the other episodes? Did you read the other scripts that no, were coming at you? I have no. Basically, idea. just no, I never, got it together. And-
2: I I saw the the others that, that were part. We had a triple pilot. Zemeckis did one, and mm-hmm. and Dick Donner did one, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, both both were very good. And- All
1: three are so stylistically different, and yet each one is terrific. Well, thank you, and, <laughs> You're uh, and I'm sure the others thank you too. And uh, well, it led to what eight years of television, something like that. I don't know if it was seven, quite that long. Seven, It went I through. Think. It went
2: through various phases. I was. Uh, I had completed uh, each director, uh, Dick, Bob, and myself had agreed to do three mm. uh, at our convenience. Uh, <laughs> I think I did three in the first. Three or four seasons, I can't remember. I can mm-hmm. Remember, and then Joel got me to do um, a, a pilot based on the Weird Science comics. Oh yeah, they couldn't use the Weird Science title, and I did one with uh, Keith Carradine, which is w- was really a tale from the crypt. And in the if we shoot more wraparounds, it's going to be included in the. Uh, so I, to me, in my mind, I always did four of them. Right. Uh, um, right. And, um, uh, I mean, that series never went. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, uh there were several other people, that they, they wanted to do another triple pilot, and it didn't work out very well. And, uh, series really didn't have a, a core the way, um uh, Tales in the Crypt did. That, right.
1: potentially that,
2: that didn't happen.
1: So. It had an attitude. Dude, it, did. it Yeah. Well, what's the one that got away from you? What's the one project that you were really passionate about that looked like it was going to happen and just evaporated?
2: The one that I kind of think about maybe more than more than the others that uh, didn't happen, I always wanted to do a movie about Jim Bowie. Mm. And I thought that you could do a kind of... He was such a mixed character. He has the... Uh, Unfortunate end. I don't. I don't want to say tragic because that's probably over glorified. I mean, he was. His 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 death has certainly been glorified, but uh, we don't really not too sure how he died at the Alamo, other than he was not in peak health and right. uh, uh, And he got
1: a knife named after him. Well,
2: he did. Uh, He and his brother and all that, and the some of the fights he was in, and the curious. uh, I always thought you. Could do a real, uh, uh, you know, he was an acquisitive, um, primal, capitalistic guy. Um, he was very physically, very brave. Um, close, close mind. Very little is actually known about him, but I mean, you, I thought that the stuff was there to make a, a hell of an interesting movie, and uh, he had never really been treated terribly seriously as a character, in literature, at least that I know of, uh, before, whereas Hickok or some of these others have, have been time and again, time uh, and again, been, uh, <clears throat> treated in a serious manner. So the Bowie thing, I think, uh, I still think about it. And also I think that somebody staging, uh, I like, I like knife fights. I think, <laughs> uh, uh, the one we did in long riders with oh, David, David Carradine, um, and Jimmy Remar.
1: It's pretty powerful stuff. It was a good one.
2: It was very, very. Uh, we laid it out in the morning and tried to shoot, and it didn't go very well. <laughs> and uh, Sam Fuller was coming over that day to have lunch with oh, me. Oh, wow! And uh, he was in town, and he, he he lived up there off Woodrow Wilson, you know, and mm-hmm. he was just a short hop down to Warner's and. We were shooting on stage at Warner's and uh, and I I said to everybody, I said look, uh, one of the great directors and a great action directors is coming to have lunch. This is embarrassing, we're, this goddamn scene stinks and uh, I don't know what the hell is, but he'll probably stay and watch uh, when we get going again and it's certainly, this is going to be the first thing up, so I hope to hell we're going to do a little better than we've done So I went off to lunch. Sam and I had a nice lunch and he came back and we suited up and (laughs) I yelled action. And I'm telling you, uh, Carradine and Remar almost killed each other. I mean, it was just,
1: (laughs) it was fabulous. And oh, the smile on your face as you tell it right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they, they did. I mean, they didn't hurt each other, but they, they, they,
2: the, the intensity and the, uh, they remembered every move and, uh, it went on, I was, you know, sometimes you get frustrated and, uh, but when the, but when it goes well, you know, this, you know, you know, this, I'm not just talking to somebody from the outside, you know, this, the, the incredible feeling that you have of being grateful to the performers who not only give of themselves, but give more than you even thought was possibly there. Thrilling. Is deeply, deeply thrilling.
1: Are you drawn to the horror genre? I mean, you've dabbled in it. You certainly, the horrific elements of Alien are there, Tales from the Crypt, and elements in The Assignment and other other features, not just the violence, but the, the sense of dread and the like. Is that something that had an appeal to you all along, or are these just things that you've put your toe in the water? Or?
2: I think I'm really drawn to the sense of dread more than the jump up uh, kind of uh, thrills. The
1: jack-in-the-box doesn't Yeah, yeah that's... Uh, I mean,
2: there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, my oldest daughter, Joanna, uh, is a great fan of horror films and she makes me... Just, still, she's uh, 28 years old. Uh, she still makes me take, take her to them and uh, she loves to sit there with me and see them when they come out. Um, uh, so, I mean, I... React like like an audience, but I, I was a great reader of Poe when I was younger, and uh, and again, it's that sense of dread that I think that feeling to me is um, a more interesting idea than just the the right. in your face the kind boom, of stuff. Yeah, yeah.
1: something but, you but, take home with you after. But after at the same
2: day. time, it's great to have a good scare. And, <laughs> it is. Uh, I'm, I think I'm more of a fan than somebody consciously working them out. to to do I I kind of got in trouble I remember I was doing an interview in England and um, I said it is kind of a half ass joke but somebody asked me the difference between action movies and horror movies and uh, then I said I said well in action movies you beat the shit out of guys and in the horror movies they beat the shit out of women. And, uh, <laughs> and I said something about I'm a little more comfortable beating the shit out of guys. Good for So you. <laughs> uh, anyway there were a lot of complaints about this definition. I I possibly not um Not the most politically correct joke that I've ever told, but... um, (laughs) But we're understanding here. Well, I hope so. Yes, yes, I hope so. Your (laughs) audience, I know, is very
1: sophisticated. And speaking of our audience, Jake asks, what is your takeaway from the status The Warriors now holds as a cult classic? Which is interesting, because it was a successful movie, but it's a movie that still lives and still breathes. And the whole idea of a cult classic, how, how do you feel about that? Well, the fact
2: that people are still interested in something you did 35, close to 40 years, 40 years ago, really. Um, the fact that that's still of interest makes, as I always say, it makes an old man happy. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, it's flattering. Um, I, and it's, it's because there was a, a big stink about the movie when it came out. It, it was both a success. It was controversial, and it was...
1: There was violence in theaters where it was
2: shown. There was violence in theaters where it was shown, and uh, the film, in my opinion, falsely was associated with some t- terrible acts of of um, violence, The um, most of which had nothing to do with the movie, but... Um, so that the fact that it's kind of lived on in another context, the idea that this movie is super violent, I mean it looks you see it now, it looks more like a musical, but uh, <laughs> um, the um, I think that the thing I, I also like I, everybody thought we were kind of crazy when we were making it and and the studio hated it, hated the movie, barely uh, you know there was a point where we we weren't even sure they were going to release it they so violently hated it. So mm. there's the sweet feeling of, uh, vindication, vindication. <laughs> yeah. They, uh, the, the, the old Paramount guys were just, boy, it was, yeah. <laughs> you just, you know, you, um, uh, you loaded your gun and went to work. I mean, that was, uh, that was the way it was there. And,
1: well, you can blow them the raspberry now. Um, well, I remember when
2: I did 48 hours there. Uh, there was an executive went to went to dailies and after dailies one day came out and said walter hill will never work this lot again and uh oh really and you know five years later i did another movie there and he was gone but uh, (laughs) (laughs) that is sweet revenge (laughs) but uh yeah so uh how do i feel about the warriors i uh I think it taught me a few things, the, uh, you know, take chances, uh, nothing safe. Um, and, um, uh, I think a lot of the reason that it's, um, uh, moved on, you know, and, and still there was, uh, there's a kind of sense memory. It was, it, there'd been a lot of gang movies before it wasn't unique in that sense. But, but I think what was unique was the movie totally and this, is no longer unique. It's it's they're all like that now. But the movie accepted uh, the characters and the gangs as part of the real world and not so much as a social problem. Mm. Uh, I, by real world, I, the movie didn't exist in the real world. But
1: <clears throat> right, it's very stylized. Yeah, in, it's in a, a very
2: stylized way. film. But but the the movie didn't wasn't the middle class looking down at. Uh, the underclass and Mm. saying, Jesus, these guys, they're not going to be going to college and they're not going to be doctors and lawyers. And isn't that sad? And shouldn't society figure out what to do? It had nothing to do with any of those. Um, it was, um, as my friend Larry Gross always says, it was a mythopoetic, um, a uh, tale of uh, survival, and
1: uh, that's a good way of putting it. Mythopoetic tale of survival. I well, like
2: I, I'm too uh, humble to use those kind of phrases, but uh, <laughs> but let Larry Gross. I'll do let it. Larry Gross. Yes, he's <laughs> Larry's much more intellectual than I am. And, Somehow, um, I doubt that. And uh, and he's certainly a lot
1: smarter than I am. So I doubt that as well. But we got one more question. Uh, Johnny asks about the alien franchise. How involved are you? in the Alien movies since the first
2: one? Not at all. Okay. Uh, the Well, actually, that's not true. Uh, I was very involved in the first three. Mm. And after that, uh, I know you'll find this incredibly surprising, but uh, my partner and I, Mr. Geiler, we did not get along with the studio very well. And we did Shocking. not, yes, and we didn't get along with where they felt it should all be going. So there was a legal divorce. Uh, we maintain ownership in part partial ownership, mm-hmm. uh, a piece of the action, as they say, in the franchise in return for that, they've insisted that our names still be on. Uh, but everything since then, sink swim yay nay good bad or indifferent, I didn't have anything to do with mm. nor did David it uh, I haven't even read any of the scripts that, uh, <laughs> since the third third alien so uh, i thought I thought it was a mistake to do the alien predator stuff uh, um, and whatever you know uh, I've seen some of them I haven't seen all of them but uh, <laughs> Uh, I saw the the was it Prometheus, right? Prometheus, I saw that,
1: yes. And now we. I kept. had a
2: very handsome credit. David and I both had very handsome credits on it. excellent. But
1: uh, well, that seems to work out to everyone's satisfaction. There. I think so. I mean, yeah. I, I haven't
2: received any phone calls or bulletins from the studio saying we terribly miss you.
1: And, <laughs> Couldn't you help us? So, You've only received the checks in the mail. Yeah. Well, that's true. And there is a retrospective of Walter's work at the Cinematheque at the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica, April 6th through the 9th, and it will also include The Assignment, his new film. So make sure you make it. Okay, you can reach us on Twitter, at PostMortemMG, one word, of course. And then don't forget, you can subscribe on iTunes. Rate us and leave feedback so we can find ways to make the show even better. Thanks. Well, I want to thank you for uh, taking part in this conversation. It's really been a great one to have, and, and we really appreciate you being here on PostMortem. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to PostMortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes.